Good morning, Summit Church. You guys ready to get to work this morning? If you got your Bible, I want you to take it out and open it at the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter is where we've been for the last few weeks and where we are this week and will be for the next few weeks to come. Uh, if you're new to your Bible, uh, if you go all the way to the right in your Bible, the very last book, uh, actually uh, before Revelation, you're going to find the concordance, then you'll find the maps, then you'll find Revelation, then you'll find Jude, then uh, 3 John, 2 John, 1 John, 2 Peter, 1 Peter. If you're working from the back, that's how you get there. Uh, 1 Peter is a wonderful study that, I, uh, that we're doing uh, together. It's just so rich and so much there that is applicable, though it's written a couple of thousand years ago. You'd think that Peter was watching in on our church and our lives and speaking directly to, um, to us. Um, 1 Peter 2.9 specifically is the verse we're going to be looking at, that and the verses right there following. The question that we're going to address today is what role the church should have or ought to have in the world. Um, I recently read a pre-release copy of uh, a book that my BFF Tim Keller uh, is releasing next uh, year. And uh, in the book, he gives four different attitudes that Christians have when it comes toward culture and, and politics. Um, before I tell you that, though, let me tell you, I heard the coolest story this week about, uh, most of you know that I released a book a, a couple of months ago, and uh, I was talking to a girl um, out in a store here in the Briar Creek area, and she just told me the coolest story. She said, I've been coming to the church for a little while, I've gotten the book, and I've started to read it. Um, she said, and I got her permission to share this story, she said, but I just went through a really, really tough time. A lot of things kind of fell apart in my life, and I went through a depression, and things kept getting worse, and she said, I, they finally checked me into a hospital because I was suicidal, and she said, while I'm there in the hospital, the attending physician comes up to me and, uh, and starts talking to me and asks me if I believe in God, and uh, I said, well, yes, I do believe in God. He said, because you know there's nothing that you could do that would make God love you any more, nothing you've done that makes God love you any less. And uh, she looked at him and she said, where did you hear that? Uh, and he said, well, I, I, somebody gave me a copy of this book and, uh, and, 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 and showed her a copy of, of the gospel. She said, well, that's the pastor of the church that I go to. He said, well, I don't go to that church, but I, I started to read this book and I thought it was just a, a great insight on the, on the gospel. Uh, and then so this girl looks at me and she said, I, I felt like God was trying to speak to me. Uh, I said, I think God is screaming at you is what I think he is, is doing. Um, so it just so encourages me, not just the fact that, you know, the book, I told you this, and I, I mean this, yes, I wrote the book, but it's something that comes out of the experience that God has given us together as a church, and to see it played out in the lives of people, in your lives, the stories I've heard, and how God has, has used um, it and that message through you in our community is something that just really, uh, really blesses me, and I'm so encouraged by um, anyway, back to the real story I was telling about, um, about Tim Keller's book. He's got these four kind of attitudes that he, um, that he gives that, that Christians generally have toward politics or toward culture. Um, here they are, number one. He said, first of all, we've got what we call a pietistic stance right here. A pietistic, by the way, this is a tad bit academic um, and a little nerdy, but for those of you that are more, you know, inclined this way, I think you'll find this fascinating. Plus, all of us, as we're getting ready to go into election season for the next year, God help us, um, you know, I think this actually might really help you, because uh, this is going to set us up for, for 1 Peter 2, 9, okay? Pietistic stance. This group has a general indifference toward the world, toward things like, you know, politics and, and injustice and problems in the world. They're like, you know what? We're all just going to be raptured anyway, and everything is going to be burned up in the end, so our main focus really ought to be on just converting as many people as we can as fast as we can. We need to get them out of the world that's perishing and into the church. I mean, because, I mean, hey, what use is, 
rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic if you know it's going to sink. I mean, you spend all the time messing around with, with this when you know it's going down. Just get people into the lifeboat, and let's, that's, that's the point. That's the pietistic stance. Second group, he, he comments on what he calls the conservative activist group. This group believes that the problem with our culture, the main problem with our world, is that our culture has lost its moral absolutes, its bearings. So what we need to do is recover Christian worldview in our government and in education. We need to make our society more Christian. So we need to get, for example, prayer back in schools. We need to get God back in the government. Jerry Falwell, Glenn Beck, both need more TV programs and that kind of stuff. That's sort of the second group. The third group that he, he, he highlights is what he calls the evangelical relevance. Evangelical relevance. Now, these are guys that usually have a lot of piercings, a lot of tattoos. They wear sort of grunge jeans, and they say frickin' a lot, okay? Um, that's sort of this, this personality. Um, uh, they're like, no, 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 no. The problem is that the church is too removed from culture. And when we do speak, we're always hostile to culture. We're always talking about how wicked Hollywood is and how depraved the music is. What we really ought to be doing, instead of messing around in politics and speaking up that way, what we ought to be doing instead is speaking up for the poor and the marginalized, trying to get guys like Bono to write more songs and wear Tom's shoes and all that, that whole bit. All right, Rob Bell for president. That's, that would be this group, all right, evangelical relevance. Here's your fourth group he, he, he highlights. It's what we call the counterculturalist group, counterculturalist. Now, now, now this group says we really don't need to be concerned with making the world like the church at all or trying to reform the world. What we need to do is be meeting the marginalized where they are and shaping a new Christian society in the church. God's arena is not the world. God's arena is the church. So that's where we ought to be focusing is this counterculture sort of thing in the church. All right, so here's my question. Four groups. Which one is the right one? Careful, because it's tricky. (laughs) The answer is... There's truth really in all of them, and all of them can find some biblical support, and there's a sense in which, in which none of them really capture the role that God's people are supposed to have in the world. Now, I am not going to answer that question fully today, but it does very, um, it, comes, it comes very much out of the text that we're going to talk about that begins to form how you should think about these things. This passage will give you the central framework to begin thinking about what role the people of God and the church and you ought to really have in the world, okay? So again, don't think I'm going to answer this question fully because that would probably take a, you know, a couple hour lecture of its own, but this passage gives you the essential components for you to begin to think about it the right way, okay? Here we go. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9. Peter discusses the identity of the people of God and what they're to be doing in the world as a result of their identity. And he does so by giving you several different word pictures. Several different word pictures, and we're going to look at those and then what they mean for you. All right, so verse 9, here's our first one. But you are a, here's your first one, chosen race. You underline stuff in your Bible, underline that or write it down. Chosen race. Every race has certain characteristics that define it, correctly? Right, I don't mean just skin color and that sort of things, but cultural things. We tend to take pride in those things. I started, by the way, to make a list of the various races and the cultures and what they were known for, and I figured that that could get politically incorrect very, very quickly. So instead, let me just do it instead for different parts of our country, because I feel like that's a little safer, okay? Northerners. Northerners. Now, how many Northerners we got here? People from the North that have transplanted down here. Okay, well, we appreciate you guys. Northerners believe that they are efficient and smart, 
That's what makes them distinctive. Now, you notice, by the way, that whatever you think you're distinctive at, you think everybody else is bad at. So, so northerners think the whole rest of the world, especially us here in the south, are slow and dumb. And it's okay, we know you think that about us. By the way, I realize, if you have a British accent, you automatically, your IQ and everybody's mind gets raised 15 points. And if you have a southern accent, it automatically gets dot 15 points. So I could be every bit as smart as some Brit, and I'm automatically counted as 30 points dumber than he is. That's just not fair, okay? But that's, that's sort of a, a characteristic of, of northerners. Southerners, we see ourselves as more moral, more hospitable, stronger families. That's why we're always complaining about how rude people are in other parts of the country and, and going back to this you know, moral framework. People out west see themselves as progressive, cultural elitist, so they, rec- they look at the rest of us as backwoods and bucktooth. Um, I was in Dallas recently. Every time I go, I mention, every time I even mention that I'm going out there to Dallas, I get 19 text messages from people in our church who are from there who want to tell me about some place I just have to eat out there because their food is so much better out there than it is out here. It's because that's a distinctive for them. They, they want to tell me that that's one of their defining things is they have better food and they're generally awesome at everything. Um, is another thing they want to tell me, which so I had to add annoying to one of their distinctives. Um, <laughs> every race has distinctions. Every culture has distinctions. This race, Peter, is going to show you. This race has distinctions. How you live, what you do with your money, how you respond to people who wrong you, the joy that you have in pain. That's going to be the subject that he's going to talk about for the next two or three chapters, which we're going to study together. All right? But here is the irony. Here is the irony. Whereas the distinctives of other races often lead to pride and division, the distinctives of the gospel do not. They lead, in fact, the opposite direction. You see, again, whatever you think makes you distinctive, you take pride in it, and you look down on people who don't have it as much as you do. Do this with me. Expand the idea in your mind, okay, of race. Don't just think like black, white, Hispanic, Asian, Arab. Don't don't think that way. Think of it more in terms of whatever group you identify with the most And then the distinctives that sets that group apart from everybody else. So for example, if you're rich, then what defines you, what the characteristic is, is your money. At least that's usually the case, or your successfulness. So you tend to look down on people who are poor or who are not as successful as you are. If you're really educated, you tend to look down on the the ignorant or people who don't, have not accomplished educationally what you have accomplished. Democrats and Republicans have absolute disdain for one another. I mean, just listen to the talk radio shows on either side. You're talking with just, I mean, just abject, just, just befuddled. How, how could anybody think that way? How could anybody not see this? How could anybody have no morals that would lead them to support this candidate or this initiative? Because there's a set of distinctives and people on the outsider, they're, they're backwoods. They don't get it. Now, I know some of you, because I know the area I'm in. Some of you are like, no, no, not me. I'm tolerant. I accept everybody. You ever notice how intolerant, tolerant people are of the people they see as intolerant? <laughs> how superior they feel to intolerant people? I read in a newspaper not long ago a comment by a school official who said, there is one thing that we absolutely will not tolerate here, and that is intolerance. And I thought, pray tell. What do you call the act of not tolerating intolerance? Maybe intolerance? I, I, I'm not even saying it's, it's bad or a bad statement. I'm just saying that we all got values. We have things that we feel like define our group when we kind of look down on those who don't have them. 
right? I mean, I mean try, driving, try driving a Hummer through Chapel Hill with an NRA bumper sticker on it and telling people you don't recycle. <laughs> and you'll see the limits of kind of open-mindedness where those things stop. So everybody, see, everybody has these defining characteristics that tend to separate the good and the bad, the, the forward from the backward. The distinctives of the gospel, however, they don't lead to pride, they lead to humility. I give you one of my favorite verses um, explaining this. I love that. You know, every one of these things that Peter says goes back to a description that God gave to Israel in the Old Testament. Every single one of these. All right, so the chosen race one where God talked about that to Israel was in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 7, God explains to Israel why he's chosen. Because they're like, oh God, you chose us, you called us. What's, what, are we special? What is it about us? Why did you choose me? God says, okay, great question. Here it is. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, he chose you. Oh, wow. Well, why did he choose us? Is it because we're awesome, because we're good looking? Is it because we have great skills? It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. That had nothing to do with how strong you were because you actually weren't that strong. You weren't that impressive. You weren't that smart. You didn't have that much you accomplished. That's not why I chose you. Oh, I know God. I know. Maybe even though we weren't that accomplished, maybe it's because we were so righteous. We were so, had such good morals. Our families were so strong. That's why you chose us. God says, I, well, I'm, I'm, I see where you think that, but know, therefore, that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, because you are a stubborn people. <laughs> you realize what he's saying to them? You're like, hey, what was it about me that made me chosen? What, what, what caused me to be chosen? He's like, there's really nothing about you. I just want you to know that. That would never work, for example, on my wife. Right? Well, you know, why did you, why did, why did you fall in love with me? Well, it's not because you're pretty, because you're not. I mean, I, I don't feel that way. I'm just saying, you know. Oh, it's, not because, it's not because you're smart, because, I mean, you're kind of dumb. Uh, it would never work that way. Now, now, I will tell you this, in the, you know, the 10, 11, 12 years that we've been in love, I do it that way, by the way, because I've been in love with her longer than she has with me. So in the 10 years I've been, or 12 years I've been in love with her, and the 10 years she's been in love with me, um, <laughs> and we've been married for 11 years, <laughs> so you figure that out. <laughs> I, I think I have developed a love for her that goes beyond her beauty and her intelligence. I think if for some reason those were taken away, that wouldn't take away my love for her. But that's just not how it works at the beginning. You're attracted to somebody because of some characteristic. Now, I do think I have this kind of love for my kids. You know, in fact, my kids and I have this little exercise. At night, sometimes I'll ask them, I'll be like, you know, does daddy love you girls because you're, you're, you're pretty? And my oldest daughter will say no. And I will say, does daddy think you're pretty? And they'll say yes. I'll say, but is that why he loves you? They'll say no. Does daddy love you because you're smart? No, but we are smart. And I'm like, yes, we are smart, but that's not why daddy loves you. Why does daddy love you? And my oldest daughter will say, you love us because we're your children. I have set my love upon them. It is not something that really is as a result of their being special. That's what God's saying to them. You're a chosen race. You're not, you, you, you weren't chosen because you're special. You're special because you're chosen. That's a whole together different ball game. That's not just a play on words. That's the essence of the gospel. In fact, in fact, in fact, he says this, look at this, right, verse 9, God chose us to proclaim the excellencies of, of who? Him. That's not a hard question. It's right there. It's underlined, all right? God wants us to proclaim the excellencies of him, not our excellencies. That's what other races do is they proclaim their excellencies. 
We're to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Then he goes on, verse 10, look at this, verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. By the way, that's a quote from Hosea, the book of Hosea. Hosea had probably what I think is one of the worst assignments ever given to a man of God and a prophet in the Bible. God told him to go marry a prostitute. And Hosea was like, what, come again? A prostitute? He's like, yeah, a prostitute. I want you to marry a prostitute. No, no, no. Prophets are supposed to marry Christian chicks, godly girls. No, I want you to marry a prostitute because I want you to give everybody a picture of my relationship with my people. So Hosea goes and marries a prostitute. She's faithful to him for two to three years, and then she goes back to a life of prostitution, and God tells Hosea to take her back. So what he's doing is now quoting this and applying this to the people of God, saying, that's where you were when God chose you. It wasn't because of beauty. It wasn't because of moral perfection. God chose you when you were ugly, deformed, spiritually a prostitute. You know, whenever, you, whenever I officiate a wedding, the most incredible moment of the wedding, always, in every wedding, right, is when those back doors open and that bride stands there in just her radiant beauty. I have never seen a bride, not in all my years of doing marriage, that was not stunningly beautiful in that moment. I've seen some that I were surprised were stunningly beautiful in that moment. <laughs> So I was like, I saw you last week, and you didn't look that good. <laughs> but in that moment, there's just something about the way it comes together, and you're just like, whoa! And you can stand next to this guy, and you can just feel the, this love just radiating toward this beauty. What Hosea is showing you, and what Peter is quoting, is like, you know, when God chose you, you weren't a radiant bride, you were a spiritual prostitute. You were ugly, you were deformed. There was nothing about you that made him set his love on you. And by the way, you didn't even choose him. He chose you. Your heart was so wicked and evil and deformed that it would never have loved God unless God wooed it first and drew us to himself. That leads not to division and pride. That destroys division and pride. I wasn't chosen because I was more moral or more intelligent or part of the upper class. God set his grace on me when I was spiritually a prostitute. I'm not a natural saint. I'm a spiritual prostitute who's been made a saint by the gift righteousness of Christ. And so the gospel has produced the most radically diverse and inclusive community that the world has ever known. You see that in the, Peter, in, the, in, the, in the people that Peter is writing to. Rodney Stark, one of my favorite historians, says, says one of the distinctive characteristics of the early church was the sheer diversity of it. In the Greco-Roman world, the rich and the poor would never mingle together, but in the church they did. In the Jewish world, in the Roman world, the Romans and Jews would never mix races, but in the church they did. And that's because the Christians taught that we were all poor when Jesus came and poured himself out for us. And there's only one race, the sinful, condemned human race, and Jesus Christ, the righteous, who came to die for all people and was not raised as a Jew or a Greek or a rich man or a poor man or a black man or a white man or Hispanic or, or Asian. He was raised as the Lord of all humanity, whose blood is given for the forgiveness of all people alike. And see, that produced a radically different kind of community. So people say to me, well, Christianity is exclusive. I'm like, every group is exclusive. Every group has defining characteristics by whether you're in or you're out. So yes, Christianity is exclusive, but it is the most radically inclusive exclusivity there has ever been. Because it has nothing to do with accomplishments or characteristics. It has to do with grace that is given to all people and all kind without measure. Right? So they're a, a chosen race. Here's the second thing. A royal priesthood. You are a royal priesthood. 
Now let's talk about priests there for a minute. Priests represent people to God and then God to people. Actually, let me switch those. Priests represent God to people and then they represent people to God. That's the role of a priest. The Old Testament community of priests, the Jewish people, that's, they stood in the, in the place of God and they were to communicate God's words to people and reflect God to them. That's one of the things that when we think about that role that provides a pretty healthy amount of pressure because I realize that a lot of times people come into here and they make up their mind about who God is based on their experiences with us. That's why we're so, we're so adamant about having the right kind of people out in the parking lot because the sermon starts in the parking lot. We want to demonstrate generosity out there. We want to take care of kids here in such a way that, that it puts on display the beauty of Christ. What we do with our money, how we give it away, we want all of that to be reflective of God because we represent God to people. You know, I thought about this the other night when I spoke out at UNC on Wednesday night. They had a thing where um, those several hundred students, and I was there to take questions and answer questions that people had about Christianity. And just the pressure of, of, of something like that, not because I thought like I didn't know the answers, but realizing that, I mean, these students know that I'm not God, but at least for this time, I'm kind of representing God. And I'm like, they're going to make up their mind about what God says by the way that I carry myself. And here's Jesus who, who was, in John 1, 17, full of grace and truth. He never backed down from telling people the truth. He would say what sin was. He'd say what right was and what wrong was. But he overflowed with such grace that he was a magnet for prostitutes and tax collectors and people who were criminals and been thrown out by society. And that's a question that we have to ask ourselves all the time. Are we really reflective of the attitude of God toward our community? Are we generous like he is? When you got one group of people in a church who are all the same age, same race, same music preferences and styles... Right? That, that's not reflective of who God is, because God didn't create one strata of society. He created all parts of society, all parts of culture. Are we reflective of God to people? Now, priests not only represented God to people, priests represented people to God, right? They would go before God, and they would take the cases of people, and they would present them to God. There's a great picture of this in the Old Testament. Um, the priest would wear um, what they called an ephod, which is kind of like a like a nighty, think nighty, okay? And, and on that ephod, they would wear 12 stones that represented the 12 tribes of Israel so that every time they went into the presence of God, these people were on their heart and they were praying for them. Jesus, our high priest, Hebrews says, now has our names written on his heart and even on his hands so that he is standing in the gap, interceding for us, okay? That is what we now do with the communities that we live in. I'm representing people to God. God puts me in situations because I am the one who knows him. He puts me between his infinite compassion and somebody's great need and bridges the gap between those things. You ought to do a study sometime. Go through the, the Gospels. Count up the number of miracles that Jesus does and then count up the number of those that began not with his initiative but with somebody else's initiative. You know what I mean by that? Like, like Jesus' initiative is when he's walking around being like, hey, I'm going to heal you, bam. All right? Uh, somebody else's initiative is when Jesus is like going one direction and somebody gets his attention and says, no, 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 I need you to come over here and help this. Count up the number of miracles that started that way. I'm asking you to do it because I've never done it and I would really like to know the answer to that. So if you find it, let me know. Um, but, but I know it's a lot. I know that what happens in the gospels, watch this, is that Jesus often responds to the faith of somebody who stands before him and says, sir, my daughter is dying. And Jesus quits walking this way and starts to walk that way and goes over and heals that. That's where you and I are placed right now. That's a concept we teach here all the time called intercessory faith. 
The idea that I am placed somewhere to stand between Jesus' compassion. And when Jesus doesn't appear to be going this direction, I come up to him and I say, God, here's what's on my heart. And I believe on behalf of this other person and I take Jesus' power that way. So that's how I want you to start reading the Gospels. When you see these miracles, I want you to read them as you coming up to Jesus to interrupt him and cause him to do what he, and I'm putting all this in quotes, all this to do what he wasn't intending to do. Because that's what it means to be a priest is to represent people to God. And one more thing on priests here. Because I feel like people overlook this all the time. Priest's primary responsibility, though, get this, was not anything in relation to people. Their primary responsibility was something in relation to God. When God called these priests out one of the things they did is they offered sacrifices continually to god their first focus was loving and adoring god this goes all the way back to the exodus i've taught you this so many times that you're in fact if you don't get this i'm gonna go home and punch myself in the face all right i tell you that there are two things that we always get wrong about the exodus all right everybody knows the exodus story most people do the two things we always get wrong about it the first thing is we've got this image of moses being about a six foot five football player with a deep baritone Charlton Heston-esque voice who stands up in front of Moses and says, God says, let my people go. And you're about, whoa, who's that? You know, let his people go. And I told you that's wrong because first of all, um, one thing we know about Moses, we don't know much, but we know that he had a speech impediment, which meant he spoke with like a, like a stutter or a lisp where he was effeminate or something, but it didn't sound like Charlton Heston. You know, that, that, that would have been like, God says, let my people go or, or, or something like that. Something that did not move everyone to fear. Now, the second thing we know is that he didn't say, God says, let my people go. He says, God says, let my people go. Come on now. So that they might worship me. His whole point was, I want a people that are going to be for me. Which means that the first thing that a priest does is it has nothing to do with people. It has to do with God. They offer sacrifices to God. I went through the New Testament in preparation for this message and listed out all the things that the New Testament says we do as sacrifices to God. I'll give you a few examples. Romans 12, 1 and 2. It is our bodies that we offer as sacrifices to God. Just because we love him. Not because the world has a need. Just because we love him. The world does have a need. But first and foremost, it is for God. Here's another one. Hebrews 13, 15. Our money. Or excuse me, Hebrews 13, 16. Our money, Philippians 4, 18 also. Paul says your money is given. There's a lot of motives Christians have for, for giving their money, right? What are some motives we have for giving? Well, we, we want to give because there are poor people who need help. We want to give because there's lost people who need Jesus. Those are awesome motivations. I don't want to dampen them at all. But there's a higher motivation. Motivation is just, it's just a sacrifice to Jesus in response to say, I love you. And because I'm giving this up as an offering to you. Hebrews 13, 15. The praise of our lips is a sacrifice to God. Which means that when we come in here and we lift our voices and our hands and we worship, we're offering a sacrifice up to God. Americans have such a, this, this view of worship that is so self-centered. How do I, I told you this a couple weeks ago, how do I feel? Do I feel like raising my hands? The point is not how you feel. The point is what he's worthy of. And so we give a sacrifice of praise that is befitting the king of all the universe who died for us. It's a sacrifice. It's, it's first God-focused. Even the people we win to Jesus, Romans 15, 16. Paul says that the people we win to Jesus, Romans 15, 16, are a sacrifice of praise to God. What is the motivation for what you do? What's the motivation? 
I, I think of uh, the woman who came to Jesus with the alabaster flask of perfume who breaks it over Jesus' feet. Jesus didn't need that. In fact, other disciples looked at it and was like, what a waste. You just poured out $10,000 worth of perfume on the ground. That could have been sold to feed the poor. Jesus cares about the poor. We know that. He gave all kinds of commands on it. But in that moment, he said, she did the better thing. Because ultimately, that offering was about love to me. And he says, wherever the gospel's preached, she's going to be talked about because that's the essence of all this. I called out a people for me, and when they worship and they love me, that just brings joy to my heart. What is the motivation for what believers do? Why do we, let me ask you this, why do we go all over the world and plant churches? Why do we give our money at Christmas time so that people can, can, the poor can be empowered and that the lost can be saved? Why? Yes, it's compassion. Yes, we, our hearts break when we see people without Jesus and in need. But there's a higher motivation, and that is just a sacrifice of praise to Jesus of love. I, I remember, um, I've told you this story probably several times, but one of those moving stories about this uh, back in the early 17th century, a couple of young men, Moravian missionaries, in the first settling of America, hear about the Caribbean island that's being settled, and its own, this one Caribbean island is owned by an atheist who has populated it with slaves to grow sugarcane. Well, they approach the atheist and say, hey, we'd like to come down, live on this island, and win these slaves to Jesus. Atheist says, absolutely not, no way, there's nothing in that for me, in fact, it'll probably just result in trouble. Wouldn't, would not budge on it. These two young men in their early 20s sell themselves into slavery for life to this slave owner so they can go live on this island to plant churches right so word gets around about what these guys are doing and a lot of their community comes out and they they leave the coast of north florida to sail away on this ship they're put in shackles like cattle and put on this ship giving away their entire lives to go live as slaves to preach the gospel and as the ship is pulling away from the harbor they see one of the, the, one of the, the people who recorded this account said they saw these, one of these guys lift up his hand like this and point straight up, and the last words they heard him say were, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. Now listen, compassion for others is awesome as a motivation, but in that you see an even higher motivation, and that is this is what Jesus is due. This is what Jesus is due. This is the glory that is due unto him. Priests represent God to people, people to God, but most importantly, they offer, verse 4, you'll see this phrase, spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ, because we exist for God. So we are a priesthood. Now, look at, that ver look at the word, go back to the verse. We're a priesthood. <laughs> there we go. A pre uh, look at this verse right here, the word, royal. Let me tell you what's interesting about that word in front of priesthood. In the Old Testament, you would never find those words together because kings could never be priests. There are only two kings that tried it, okay? One of them was Uzziah, and the moment he went in to offer a sacrifice, he was a king, God smote him with leprosy from his head to his toe. That was a bad day, right? Then you had Saul who offered a sacrifice, and God rejected him from being king for that. Kings were never allowed to be priests. In Christ, you have the first king priest. And now us in him, we are royal priests because we have the access to God of a priest, but the status of a king. That doesn't mean that you and I walk around ordering everybody around and making them serve us because we're a king like Jesus who came not to be served, but to serve, all right? But it ought to change, watch, it ought to change your mind about your position and your status and your privilege before God. 
you are a king and a queen. Paul uses this when he's talking to the Corinthians about how idiotic they're acting. He's like, you know, you can't get along. You're always fighting about stuff. Don't you understand you people are going to judge angels? Quit acting like children. You are a king and you are a, you are a queen. People are like, oh, well, no, I'm just a worm before God. Yes, there is a part of that that is true. You are a worm before God. That's only half the gospel. You're a worm that God has given the status of a king and queen in him, so start carrying yourself that way. I remember when this truth really came home to me. I was, it was right after I graduated college. It was a, a season after college where I was just very insecure about where I was going, I, about what my gifts were, about whether or not I had any real future. And I just was kind of, I kind of went into a funk that lasted for several months. It wasn't clinical depression, but it was just, I was just like, I'm just not sure if things going anywhere. I'm not sure what my life is doing. I wasn't eating right. I wasn't taking care of myself. I generally had a bleak outlook on life. It was this truth right here that brought me out of that. Because I can remember the evening that God just kind of opened this up to me. And I was like, wait a minute. I am the son of a king. Other people would have, if they were on assignment from the president, would have confidence and they would have courage and purpose. I am on assignment from the king of kings. I am blessed, favored, forgiven, and loved. And yes, I am a worm before God, but God has set his love and his purpose on me. And if other people would feel privileged because they had an appointment from the governor, how should I feel with an appointment from God Almighty? That truth should affect how we pray to God, right? You come before him as a royal son. People come, again, people come to God, they're all humble, like, oh God, oh God, you don't, we're not worthy for you to hear our, 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 our. and that's true. You're not worthy for him to hear you. But that's only half the gospel. The other half of the gospel is that he's made you so righteous in Christ that you are, Hebrews 4, to come boldly into the throne of grace. It should, get this, it should astonish people how bold you are in your prayers. It ought to, it, it ought to seem almost to them blasphemous. I used to see this with Muslims when I lived among Muslims. Having the kind of intimacy and familiarity with God that a Christian is supposed to have is blasphemous to them. Because there is an intimacy that you have that you have just because of what you know that he's made you. He's made you royal. I mean, think for a minute if you get, had a chance to talk to the president. If any of you talk to the president. I've never had that chance, but if you did, you know, going to the, pre you know, yes, sir, Mr. President, how obsequious you are to him. If you had to ask him for a favor, you would couch it in a hundred, you know, oh, I need you to do this, thank you so much. You know, everybody approaches the president that way except for people who are intimate with him, like his children, <laughs> right? My children, it doesn't matter who I'm with and what I'm doing, whatever my kids need, they feel like is the most important thing on my agenda at that moment. You know, like, Daddy, I need you to turn the TV down. I need you to turn on the TV. Ned, I need you to do that. I was with somebody in my house the other day having a conversation that I thought was kind of important, and I hear my three-year-old from the bathroom just ho holler out, Daddy, come wipe me. <laughs> get up, and, you know. That is the kind of confidence that you approach God with because you are a royal son or daughter. You are a royal priest. So some of you need to quit playing the humble game, which is really the unbelief game. And believe that God has made you his chosen royal son or daughter. And you ought to come to the throne boldly to say, God, I am your child. And God, I have no questions about your willingness. I have no questions about my prerogative to ask. And I'm asking you to do this because you promised you would do it. It should astonish the world how bold you are in your prayers. By the way, one more thing on this. Um, there are some traditions that have a set class of priests. I mean, you're familiar with those. Some of you came out of this. I mean, maybe it's still part of this. Let me tell you why our church does not. There are two reasons. Number one, I don't need 
a human being as a priest to tell me what Jesus has already told me in his word. So when a priest comes to me and, and says, I forgive your sins, I'm like, you know, Jesus forgave my sins when I repented and believed the gospel. Acts 10, 44, Acts 13, 31, Acts 16, 31, Romans 10, 9 and 10, Romans 10, 13, and about 500 other verses. Why do I need you to tell me what Jesus has already told me? It's almost like you come up to me and say, I declare your name to be Greer. I'm like, awesome. You know, my dad gave me that name 38 years ago, but I appreciate it, you know. I don't need a human being to tell me what God's word has already told me. That's number one. Number two, you're all priests. That's why. It's not a special class of us that went to seminary or got some kind of degree. I'm washed in the same blood that you are. You're washed in the same blood as I am. And it's not my seminary degree that gives me access to God. It's not my calling. It is the blood of Jesus, and you have the same blood of Jesus that I do. Therefore, we don't set a separate class of priests as if they had special privilege to God because you have access by the same precious blood that I have access to, which is why there is no distinction between a priest and a non-priest. We're all priests. You're a royal priesthood. All right? Here's the next one. A holy nation. This is a good one. We've got to hurry through this one. A holy nation. Holy nation. A, a nation within a nation. A nation within a, a part of a new nation. By the way, you'll notice this is why you don't have an American flag in here. It's not that I'm not patriotic. I, I am. I'm very patriotic. It's just that in here, there's a unity around Jesus and around nothing else. It's not a unity around the American flag. It's not a unity around politics. It's a unity around Jesus. And when people come in here, they ought to enter an entirely new nation. Think of it almost like an embassy. An embassy represents one country, but it's actually the territory of the other country within this country right? And so when you go into that embassy, you talk to the representatives of that country. If the embassy is bad, if it's all disheveled and dirty, you get a bad impression of that country. Well, the same way when people come in here, they should have an impression of what heaven is like, because this is not an American outpost, this is an heaven outpost. That's why Peter is so concerned about what they're living like. He says, verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds instead and glorify God. That word conduct, by the way, is used 13 times in the Bible, in the, Old, in the New Testament. Eight of those times are right here in the book of Peter. Because Peter is just very concerned about this. I want your conduct to reflect heaven. And what he's going to do for the next two or three chapters that we're going to look at in the next few weeks is he is going to, he's going to show them what that's like. But for right now, he just summarizes it in one word. Go back. Holy. Holy. You're going to be a holy nation. Now, remember I explained to you what holy means a couple weeks ago? I told you there are two things to know when it comes to the word holy. Remember this? Don't break my heart. All right? First of all, the word holy, the first image you ought to get, comes from the Hebrew word. Remember the Hebrew word? Oh, come on. Chadosh. You want to say it again? I know you do. Chadosh. Chadosh. All right, that's weak. If the person in front of you is not wiping stuff off the back of their hair, you didn't say it right. Chadosh. Chadosh. And it literally means separated. And so when you think holiness, the first thing you think is separation, separated from all that is impure. So holiness is separation. But I told you there's another dimension of holiness in the Old Testament, and we see that in the English version of the word holy. It's not in the Hebrew word, but it's a Hebrew concept. And that is wholeness of beauty and love. So you've got separation from all that's impure and then perfection of love. So that, watch, the holiest person who ever lived, Jesus, was not separate from the problems of the world, but actually entered into their pain, touched lepers, 
healed sinners, forgave them, and mixed with them. And I told you that holiness, a lot of Christians only think about holiness in terms of the first, separation. It's like when you get saved, you get dipped in this Holy Ghost sanitation Lysol oil, and you get put in the church, and you just have no contamination with the world. Right? No. Holiness is like Jesus, which means that if you were not, watch this, soiled with the pain of the world, you are not holy. Because holy is not just separation, it's ice, well, let me actually define this. I wrote this down. Where is this? I thought this was good. Our separation is not isolation. It is contact without contamination. Holiness is demonstrated by living among the pain of the world and keeping yourself free from the corruption of the world. Like C.T. Studd, one of my favorite missionaries, used to say, he said, some people want to live in the sound of chapel bells. I want to run a mission a yard from the gates of hell. Because to follow Jesus, who was ultimately holy, means that you are among the pain. Jesus taught about this in a great way in the Sermon on the Mount when he unfolded this whole new nation concept. And he, he gave two images that are awesome that you got to put together. You get one without the other, this is where you get messed up. Right? First image he gave was you were salt. The other one's going to be light. Now salt works best when it is scattered. Right? You don't want salt all together. I, mean, I love salt. I eat way too much salt, put salt on everything. But even I don't like just get a bowl of salt and just eat it. Right, that's bad. Um, but when you sprinkle it out, it adds flavor. It adds beauty to food. Jesus said there's a dimension to the church that is not to be gathered. It is to be scattered because you are to be bringing healing. You are to be bringing beauty and justice and mercy into all arenas, culture, the movies, music, art, politics, all of it. You are scattered. He said, but there's another dimension, light. Light actually works better when it's gathered. You gather all the light together in one place and it creates a light that is able to help other people, right? So if you had a bunch of candles, you put them together and then you can send a signal out to a you know, ship that's coming in when light is concentrated. So there's a dimension to God's people that when you come together, you radiate the light of his glory by your love for one another, by your fellowship. That's what we do in here is we come together as light and we are, Jesus' words, Matthew 5, 16, a city set on a hill, the glory of which cannot be hid, see? So there's a gathering and there's a scatter. There is, um, Jesus actually gives you a really good picture of both of these in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, right before he gives the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 4, 23 says he's down among the people touching and it says all kinds of diseases for all kinds of people. Salt, everywhere. He's in everywhere. But then he comes up to do the Sermon on the Mount onto a mountain so he pulls up and pulls the people up and teaches them the beauty of the commandments of God. That's light. Now in my opinion, the church is a whole lot better at the gathering than we are at the scattering. And I would say we're not being a church until every single broken, hurting part of Raleigh-Durham has a representative of the Summit Church in it being the salt of Jesus Christ to preserve and beautify. So scatter. And then come together like this, and we're going to put Jesus on display when we worship. But it's both of them together. We're a holy nation. All right, last one here. Actually, there's like one and a half more, but the half one's real short, okay? So when I do this next one, I'll be like, oh, you promised to be done, and you didn't. Um, Okay, here we go. Here's... Um, all right, here we are, the underlined one. A people of his own possession. A people for his own possession. This is my favorite one because some of your translations say coveted. You're a people for God. You're a people for God. You see, this is going to become the wellspring of everything they're going to be able to go through because, listen, God cares about them. Remember that verse from Hosea? God cherishes you. God cares about you. God set his love on you. Who cares if the world around you hates you? 
Who cares if everything falls apart? God cares about you. Does that make sense? My neighbor took me out to dinner the other night and told me the most amazing story. Uh, He might be here this morning. Um, So he he and his wife took me and my wife out, and he he said, okay, so he said about 15 years ago, I was doing a lot of international travel, and I was in London, and I got in the airplane to fly home. Uh, You know, I was in business class or first class, and I'm sitting there, nobody is, you know, in the seat next to me. And I said, I was kind of excited about that until right at the last minute before they shut the door of the plane, this girl runs onto the plane, sits down right beside me, kind of out of breath. And I, he said, I was kind of bummed out because, you know, I don't have an open seat next to me anymore. And I was like, dude, you're flying in first class. Get over yourself. Um, so so he, he, he says, so she's sitting there. And um, he said, so I struck up a conversation with her. I'm like, you know, what are you doing in London? She said, well, um, actually, I'm, I'm part of this a movie shoot uh, that they're doing out here. He said, well, what movie is it? He said, well, it's a remake of um, an old movie, Peter Pan. He said, oh, well, is there like anybody famous in it that I would recognize? She said, yeah, Robin Williams is in the movie, and she named a couple other actors. And uh, he looked at her, he said, that's great. That's so good. That's big for you, isn't it? I mean, this is like a, what a privilege and a responsibility you have. He gets up, goes to the bathroom. His friend runs back to him and says, do you know you're sitting next to Julia Roberts? (laughs) And he's like, who's Julia Roberts? (laughs) You know, and so he goes back to her and you know knowing now that she's kind of you know famous but totally clueless as to who she is you know and, 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 and now here's a question do you he said what was amazing was she was just so nonplussed about all this she's just you know whatever you know the she was already established okay pretty woman you know she's already established the fact that somebody who was who was culturally out of it <laughs> didn't know who she was, didn't bother her because her identity is already firmly established. See, what I'm saying to you is God cares about you. God cherishes you. You are coveted by God. Who cares what a bunch of no-account earthlings have to say about you? You're a people for his own possession. And so Peter says, this is your identity. Church, this is who you are. This is who you are. You are a people that are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a coveted people of God's own possession. And you got a chance to build your life in a way like Jesus' life that is permanent and that brings life and blessing to the world. That's the other half one I told you about. You go back to verse 4. You see he talks about a spiritual house, a spiritual nation, a spiritual house, and that Jesus is a living stone. Remember a living stone, and then you and I, do you see this, get to be living stones on top of him, which means that just like Jesus' life lasted forever, just like Jesus' life was blessing, and Jesus' life brought life, that's what my life gets to be. I get to be used here on earth as insignificant as anybody might think my life is. I get to be a part of a building that lasts forever and brings resurrection healing to the earth. That is something that gets me out of bed in the morning. I saw the most tragic example of this in the opposite way. Just this week, um, there was, I know all of you know Steve, Do- Steve Jobs died several few weeks ago. And, uh, and, you know, Steve Jobs, one of the most amazing men that our generation's produced. Um, most amazing man, I think, probably in, in, in business history. And there was an interview that 60 Minutes did with Steve Jobs. And this interview that they did, uh, you know, they showed after he died with his biographer. I haven't yet read a biography yet. It sounds like a great book, but he... He talked about talking with Steve Jobs for the end of his life. And he said that Steve Jobs, they had a clip of this interview where Steve Jobs starts talking about God. And Steve Jobs says, you know, throughout my life, I believed on and off in God. He said, sometimes I believe there's a God, sometimes I don't. He said, I give God a 50-50 shot of, of existing. He said, but I will tell you this, as I get toward the end of my life, I really want there to be a God. 
He said, because if there is no God, there's no afterlife. And there's no afterlife, he says, then it all stops. And what good does any of it do? He said, if there's no God, then nothing matters. Nothing matters. You're just dead and that's it. He said, so I will tell you that as I get to the end of my life, I really want there to be a God. He said, but then sometimes I think, no, the human body is just like an on-off switch. That once you turn it off, it's just off. He said, incidentally, and he added this. He said, incidentally, that's why you'll notice Apple products hardly ever have an on-off switch. Because I just don't like the concept of something being off forever. You can accomplish, you get this? Everything that any of us dream of accomplishing. How could you hope to accomplish more than what Steve Jobs accomplished? And get to the end of your life and say it's all useless. Because you're dead and that's it. I have a chance, you have a chance, to begin to be a part of a, as a living stone in a spiritual house that brings life to the world and is permanent. What are you leveraging your life for? Church, listen. What you do flows out of who you are. So embrace who you are in Christ and then begin to live and leverage yourself for what you do. At all of our campuses, I just want you, let's just end by meditating on this. Bow your heads at all of our campuses. I'm going to invite your campus pastor to come up. Would you take these two things, who you are, and then what that implies about what you do and how you serve and how you give away your life. You listen to the Spirit of God and your campus pastor as they come to lead us.